Hi, I'm Dr. Doran Schneider. I'm a general internist at Abington Health right outside of Philadelphia. And today we're going to talk about a landmark trial called the DCCT trial. And here to discuss this landmark trial with me is Dr. Jack Leahy. Uh, Doran, hi. Uh, I'm Jack Leahy. And just to introduce myself, I'm uh, the head of endocrine here at the University of Vermont in uh, Burlington, Vermont. Fabulous. Well, thank you for spending a few minutes with us here today, Dr. Leahy. Um, we wanted to uh, really uh, reflect on the history of the DCCT, uh, given that we're coming up on really 30 years of achievement, uh, and uh, that reflects both the DCCT and then the continuation study called the EDIC study. So just to give everyone a foundation about what these trials are, what the trial is and, and uh, the EDIC study is. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, really what was the construct of the DCCT? Can you give us a little bit about you know, who were the patients, what were the questions they were trying to answer uh, back 30 years ago when the trial just launched? Yeah, I actually love that you said it's a landmark trial. I think at least from my perspective and probably the diabetes perspective in general, it's really a stunning clinical trial that has clearly stood the test of time and many people still view as one of the great clinical trials uh, in our field. So, so this was a trial that was designed to deal with a really controversial question many years ago, a question that actually younger people have sort of forgot which was, is there actually a proven benefit of uh, intensive blood glucose control in patients who have diabetes? And if there is, what actually is that benefit? And, and the question back then was more focused on microvascular complications as opposed to macrovascular complications because really the classic diabetes complications back in the 80s and 90s related to issues in terms of the eyes and kidneys and legs and that kind of thing. This was a trial of taking patients with type 1 diabetes uh, broken into two subgroups. So about half of the patients, and this is a U.S. trial, and on average I think there was 1,440 patients or so that were enrolled, about half of them were absolutely free of any microvascular complications and in particular um, retinal microvascular complications. And, and the other half had had their illness for a little more on average than five years and they had some very, very modest uh, retinal complications, nothing uh, terribly overt. And so the design of the trial was to intensify blood, glu blood glucose control in a, a subgroup and then look at the outcomes primarily in terms of retinal uh, health, but also many of the other complications in terms of um, peripheral vascular issues, neuropathy, and also uh, in terms of kidneys and then compare that safety in terms of rates of hypoglycemia and really anything else that might have been identified. Now, what's really crucial in sort of thinking about this trial is it was published in the New England Journal in 1993, and it was performed over an average of six to seven years. So you go back six or seven years, and it really sort of was performed uh, from the end of the 80s through the beginning of the 90s and thus was designed in protocol even before that. So this is a time preceding so much of the standard technology and therapeutic um, things that we use today. So uh, intensive therapy back then 
was really defined as, well, you can't use NPH insulin. It was kind of known that NPH was a difficult insulin. So intensive therapy in the mid-1980s was either putting people on an insulin pump, and that was about a little more than half the patients, or giving them a, a basobolus insulin program. But in that time, the, the current analog insulins we have didn't exist, so basobolus insulin program was mostly using ultralente insulin and then regular insulin at meals. Multi-shot insulin program with some blood glucose testing as opposed to conventional control, which back then was really NPH and regular with virtually no blood glucose testing. Um, and then again, they were followed for an average of about seven years to see what happened. The general sort of results were that in the intensive group, they were able to actually get an average hemoglobin A1C over all of those years of about seven, which is actually stunning if you kind of think about it. Uh, as opposed to the conventional group, which were an average of about nine, so they had a two percentage point difference, and they just saw huge reductions in microvascular complications, stunning reductions in both retinal problems and in early kidney problems and in peripheral neuropathy of more than 50 plus percent for all of those over the six to seven years of the trial the beginning of the whole concept that has now driven diabetes care since that time, which intensive blood glucose control has a major, if not dominant, impact on risk of microvascular complications. We still sort of argue over um, the issue related to macrovascular, although as I'm guessing we'll talk about later, the EDIC trial has actually shed some light on that. Well, what a wonderful uh, intro to the trial, its design, uh, the primary endpoints, uh, and then some of the secondary looks at harm. Uh, if you can just um, tell us a little bit about the patients who were uh, enrolled in the sense of their uh, duration of diabetes. Uh, you referenced that they were relatively free of some complications, but can you tell us, just so that we understand how generalizable this trial is to the patients that we see in the office, first of all, you did mention they were type 1, but how far into their disease were they? Were they young? Were they middle-aged? Were they older? Uh, can you just give us a frame of reference uh, at uh, time of entry to the trial? Well, you know, uh, generally fairly young into uh, early adult years, I think on average, uh, children were not included, but adolescents uh, were, and then uh, into early adult years. Again, half the group were free of any kind of known complication and had a duration of less than five years of the illness. The other half had very, very modest complications, and I think uh, were allowed to have a duration anywhere from five to 15 years is my memory. So the kind of patients I think we would think about pretty early in the course of type 1 diabetes and fairly young, and actually that'll be important as we start to think about the EDIC trial, but pretty early in the disease. This is in no way a trial of taking people with long-standing type 1 diabetes, established complications, high risk of cardiovascular disease, and then study the impact of intensive blood glucose control. That's not this trial. This is when someone's pretty early in the course of the disease and still very healthy related to this disease, how intensive therapy might have a benefit at that time. 
Excellent. Uh, that does help frame out uh, the uh, the trial design. Uh, so you clearly reference the the outstanding benefit that we saw in microvascular uh, disease uh, in the order of 50, 60, almost 70 percent reduction. Uh, in that benefit, uh, we did see that it did did come at some degree of cost uh, as it relates to uh, particularly hypoglycemia and weight. Uh, if we can spend just a few moments talking about each one of those, let's start with hypoglycemia. Uh, this uh, it was a, a pre-specified endpoint uh, that uh, was collected uh, prospectively. W what did we learn uh, about uh, really driving down that uh, blood sugar uh, to a mean of seven? Uh, what happened to hypoglycemia? So the answer to that is they had a, mi a much higher frequency of hypoglycemia, and in particular serious hypoglycemia. But, but I think the proper answer to that must frame um, the time frame of when all this occurred. So as I already said, the only insulins which were available are really the insulins which precede the analogs which we have today. So just by definition, not as safe as what we think about with our current analogs. And so not only is it a fold difference in terms of rate of hypoglycemia that I'll mention in a second, but also the absolute numbers actually have important as, uh, importance as we think about how things have really evolved over the last 25 years since this trial. So what was seen back then was a three-fold higher rate of serious hypoglycemia and admissions to the hospital for hypoglycemia versus the control group. And I think when I try and teach this trial to uh, students and to, to the residents, and try, I try and point out to them, this is not junky hypoglycemia. You know, the definition of serious hypoglycemia is is traditionally then and has continued since then as requiring help from someone else. But if you really talk to patients, these are events that they don't forget or that their spouses or other people who've been involved don't forget. These are seizures. These are unconsciousness. These are um, car accidents. I mean, these are major events. And back then, a threefold higher rate, I mean, that is very, very serious in terms of that observation, that it was clear intensive therapy back then came with a significant price in terms of hypoglycemia. The other issue that I think is interesting is that when you look at the absolute rate as reported back in the trial, uh, it's usually reported as episodes per 100 patient years. And, and I can't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere in the range of about 50 or 60 uh, episodes per 100 patient years. So what that meant is with state-of-the-art intensive therapy in a you know, very carefully monitored clinical trial back at that time, back in the 80s and early 90s, that people who are in the intensive group would have on average an episode of major hypoglycemia uh, a little bit less than every two years, um, which in today's world would be shockingly unacceptable. Because as we now move forward and just sort of move in today's world and think about what clinical trials might tell us in type 1 diabetes with intensive therapy, with all of the monitoring devices we have and with all of the better insulins, you know, we typically think about a rate of two, three, somewhere in that range, certainly one-tenth or less than what we saw back then. So the rate of hypoglycemia was very significant back then and clearly balanced all of the positives. 
And before we finish uh, this segment on hypoglycemia, is there any data about any long-term uh, sequelae from uh, sequelae from hypoglycemia in the sense of impact on cognitive status, dementia, or any other uh, long-lasting uh, effect as it relates to patients who did uh, have hypoglycemic events, as you described? Well, that's a hard question. I'm not sure how to exactly answer that. I'm not sure whether there are any reported data from this trial um, on that specific issue. If there are, I can't answer that. And I, and I yeah. think in some respects, we have more of a general concern. I think all of us in, in this business have seen people who have had repeated bouts of hypoglycemia and have had um, probably some medical and or neurological sequelae related to that. Uh, on the other hand, I think the probably prevailing opinion would be just the opposite, that people tolerate um, bouts of serious hypoglycemia pretty well. Uh, we do know that there's a relationship maybe with dementia in the diabetes world, probably more type 2 diabetes. Don't think that's related to hypoglycemia, but on the other hand, I guess one could argue a little bit. We don't exactly know. And, and there was great fear years ago that if you look at children with type 1 diabetes and do IQ tests, they seem to be a little bit less good than control children. But on the other hand, if you now do studies against other children with chronic illnesses, they kind of match up. So I guess my feeling in the answer to that is it's never desirable uh, to have any kind of significant hypoglycemia problems in patients, but it is not clear to me there's any lasting sequelae in most patients. Right, and that's my uh, understanding as a primary uh, care doc uh, as well uh, regarding uh, both uh, in general and as it relates to this trial uh, that uh, they did not find specifically in the hypoglycemia group. Uh, yeah, if I might, let me just actually jump in uh, with one more thing, if I might, because sure. th there is a, another part to the trial related to hypoglycemia I probably should identify. So if you actually go back and read that trial, because of this increasing rate of hypoglycemia um, in the intensive therapy, and again, a third increase, of in, um, a, a, a threefold increase in the intensively treated patients. If you actually look at the New England Journal paper, there's an interesting figure which is showing the benefits in terms of microvascular reduction as graphed against the risks of hypoglycemia when your x-axis is uh, the hemoglobin A1c. And so the conclusion of that study was the optimal hemoglobin A1c in a patient with type 1 diabetes was 7 because then you have near total um, reduction in risk of retinal disease as opposed to less of a risk of serious hypoglycemia than if you further lower the A1C. So back then, we were pretty comfortable. Shoot for seven, don't go much lower, you know, do the best you can. I think in today's world, probably the discussion is not quite so absolute because our current insulins are a bit safer. And actually, the EDICT trial, again, has sort of raised some issues. Maybe a bit, a bit lower is better. Right, right. So let's move now to weight. What, what happened over the course of DCCT? And then uh, we will uh, talk about the extension trial in a moment. But th that, I believe, was one of the other major uh, costs, if you will, correct? Uh, you are exactly correct. And in fact, everything I've said so far, at least in terms of the risk of hypoglycemia, was predicted. I mean, no one's going to be surprised that when you lower A1C dramatically in these patients that, sure, hopefully you would see benefits, what they did, but it's going to come with a cost, and the cost was hypoglycemia. What was not predicted and actually was a big shocker is that there also came with a substantial risk of weight gain. And again, if you go to the original trial, the New England Journal paper, and just kind of quickly 
actually read, what you will see is that there was on average about a five-pound weight gain. So remember, this is about a six- to seven-year trial in the conventionally treated patients as opposed to about a 10-pound weight gain or thereabouts in the intensively treated patients. So when you first read that, I think you could sort of say, oh, well, you know, it's there, but it's not stunningly huge. So even though it was there, it was reported as an outcome, I don't think people uh, initially sort of appreciated that this is kind of much of an issue. And then um, starting two years later, lots and lots of subgroup analyses, different kinds of papers take this huge database and start to analyze it. And there was a paper published a couple of years later, which I think really um, put this into a capsule that we had not anticipated. And that was they started to look at the weight gain in the patient population in quartiles. And so there was a quartile of people who didn't gain any weight. So they were, you know, they were fine with the intensive therapy. And then the opposite quartile, the average weight gain was very, very substantial. I can't remember the exact number, but probably about 20 pounds on average. And actually, when you went to that quartile, not only were they gaining weight, they were uh, also having manifestations of many of the metabolic issues we sort of link to um, weight gain, such as um, blood pressure increases, such as more of a metabolic lipid profile. And for the first time, I think people's eyes opened up to realize, well, wow, there maybe is some overlap between the metabolic background that we then had typically linked really only to type 2 diabetes, that maybe in some patients with type 1 diabetes, there's actually a similar kind of predisposition which might be brought out through intensive insulin therapy. And now we again move into today's world. And that's a huge topic of conversation now because our teenagers and young people with type 1 diabetes are getting bigger and bigger and, and are having more of the metabolic sequelae that one sort of thinks about with obesity and insulin resistance. It's not unique to type 2. We're seeing it more and more in type 1 diabetes. So, so that's the other issue with weight. It's really uh, emerged years after the trial to recognize this is a major you know, risk of people who are on intensive insulin therapy if they have if they have the genetic predisposition to be at risk for that. Now, um, what I'd like to turn to uh, is the next phase uh, after the DCCT. T, I'm sorry, the DCCT trial formally ended. Uh, there was a wonderful observation, uh, natural observation study called the EDICT study, where uh, there were additional insights about such things as weight uh, that you just described, as well as the primary endpoints uh, that were described earlier in our podcast. So can you please tell us a little bit about what happened in the EDICT study, which is a continuation observational trial? How many years did it go for, and what, uh, what happened to the two arms uh, of the DCCT? Yeah, so this is this is actually just a I think a fabulous story. Uh I am of the generation, I think you are too, quite frankly, where when the DCCT was published, I mean it was incredible news in nineteen ninety three. It changed it changed our world, it changed how we thought about things, but somehow we thought it was a complete story. And that the story was that if you intensively treat people with type one diabetes in a way that was doable 
and increasingly doable as, as treatments got better, that you will um, have a real important protective effect against microvascular complications. But in the original trial, there was no benefit for macrovascular complications. And in part, that was because they were, these are pretty young, for the most part, healthy people who, you know, are not, are not terribly at risk for cardiovascular events. And so, you know, you're not going to see much of a protective effect if you, not much was happening in the control group. So that's kind of what we thought was the finished story. And so what the EDIC trial was, was to take people who um, were now finishing the um, DCCT trial and continue to follow them, but no longer in any kind of controlled environment. So essentially, the trial stops, and all of the intervention stops, so that the people who were the intensive group, uh, you know, within about a year, A1C started to loosen up a little bit and, and sort of drifted up to the high sevens. Because that's what happens. It's not easy to keep uh, an A1C of 7% um, with type 1 diabetes. It's really hard work. And when you're no longer in the, in the clinical trial, then it just loosened up a little bit. So they kind of went, again, they rose a bit. And then the people who were in the control group who previously had had a hemoglobin A1C of 9%, they started to hear all of the wonderful things attached to the better control. And so they just naturally improved because I think the medical profession had adopted that, you know, this is important. So their A1Cs came down to the high sevens. And so somewhat serendipitously, these two groups within a year or so essentially equalized in terms of hemoglobin A1C and actually equalized in terms of uh, sort of treatment approaches. So they became one and the same now. There was no obvious difference between the two. And then they were just followed, and they were followed for close to another 10 years. And um, data was periodically collected to understand the different health issues of these individuals and see how they're doing. So that's the design with some pretty interesting surprises. Yeah, so a uh, very crisp uh, review of that observation, uh, observational follow-up study, which lasted almost 20 years, uh, and uh, you alluded to the interesting findings. So uh, let's start off first with the primary endpoints uh, regarding microvascular complications. Uh, what did we see as it relates to them? So, you know, what I guess maybe to try and understand why these are interesting, you might take one step back and say, well, what might you have predicted? And I think probably people would say, well, the prediction would be that when you have this difference in A1C, this in intensive uh, therapy difference, is you'll see a protective effect against uh, something, i.e. microvascular complications is what was identified. But now if the difference in A1C goes away, then in theory the protective effect will go away. It may take a period of time, but the concept would be that it'll go away. I mean, you need ongoing intensive therapy to maintain the benefit. And that is not at all what was seen. The initial protection against microvascular complications and, and the ones that have been mostly focused on are retinal, but there's been um, also a neuropathy in some of these that they continue. Something about that early period of intensive therapy 
gives a ongoing protective effect that is does not require maintenance of that intensive um, difference in A1C, which is kind of stunning if you think about it. Right, and I believe that that concept has been uh, one that has been named metabolic memory, uh, and I, I believe that uh, it has really uh, fundamentally altered uh, the uh, way that we think about uh, the early and aggressive treatment of patients who, who are just diagnosed, uh, really for um, uh, all the above reasons that you've just articulated. Uh, this is a, a lasting impact that you're making over decades uh, to really get uh, that, that initial early control. Uh, the uh, beta cells have, have memory. Um, so uh, let's then uh, focus on the big other shock that you've alluded to a couple times regarding macrovascular complications. Now, you, you did uh, clearly state that this is a, um, a very young population. They didn't have a lot of comorbidities. They didn't have a lot of cardiac risk factors. So we didn't see a lot of endpoints as it relates to cardiac outpoints, uh, outcomes in the DCCT. What did we see as it relates to cardiovascular outcomes in EDIC? So I love how you framed the question because shock, this is just more than shock. I mean, this is really a uh, altering event in our world, which is uh, this same lingering memory, uh, molecular mimicry, whatever you want to call it, was true for cardiovascular disease. And so all of a sudden, because the trial had now drifted out to another 10 plus years from the original um, seven years of the DCCT, you're getting older people who are having higher cardiovascular event rates and the same protection, sizable protection. We're not talking something a little dinky. I mean, we're talking at the sort of 30 to 40% protective range was still there years after the trial was over. And again, I emphasize that not only had A1C um, come back to be equal during the 10 years they weren't in the trial, but blood pressures were the same, lipids were basically the same. I mean, none of the cardiovascular risk factors that we think about easily explains any of this. There was something magical, magical, about that first six to seven years of intensive blood glucose control in these patients, which continued to be present 20 years later. And I don't think we have a time where it's ended yet. I mean, maybe it's going to go forever. So uh, a stunning observation that now covered not just microvascular complications, but macrovascular complications, and totally moved the conversation of um, intensive blood glucose control and protection away not just from microvascular issues but long-term macrovascular issues. So it uh, really uh, span, it, it uh, crossed the gamut uh, of uh, microvascular and macrovascular uh, improvements uh, in endpoints, and thus uh, was a, a trial that, that uh, really shook the landscape uh, and will never be repeated. Uh, quite confident of that. Uh, as we finish up here, I, I can't help but uh, uh, just uh, have you comment, if you would, uh, around uh, the uh, type 2 diabetic patient. And do, do any of the things that we just described uh, really um, bear out in type 2 diabetes. Uh, this is a majority of uh, new onset diabetes uh, is type 2. Uh, this was a landmark trial. Can we glean anything as it relates to that even larger population as it relates to micro or macrovascular uh, from DCCT or EDIC? 
So the, the wonderful way to answer that is more or less, more or less, everything I just said can uh, be applied to type 2 diabetes as long as you're willing to be a little creative in terms of lining up the similarities. So as soon as the DCCT came out, and again, that was a New England Journal paper in 1993, I think the results were so widely and stunningly accepted that um, intensive blood glucose control as possible that many years ago was viewed as now the standard of care for type 1 diabetes. Fine. Uh, but immediately the question became, does this have any relevance to type 2 diabetes? Because, of course, the vast, vast, vast majority of patients around uh, the world have type 2 diabetes. And also, uh, you know, we didn't use insulin quite the way for type 2 diabetes then that we do now. So we didn't quite think about intensive therapy um, the same way for type 2 diabetes we did for type 1 and then, of course, in older folks, there is always fear about additional risks of hypoglycemia uh, in terms of what that might mean for cardiovascular risks on and on. So it turns out we um, asked, does it work in type 2? And then five years later, in 1998, was the publication of the famous UKPDS, the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study, that was not actually perfectly analogous to the DCCT. It was a little bit of a different trial. But it was looking at first drug therapy and type 2 diabetes in people who were very, very early in the course of the disease, looking at um, an attained hemoglobin A1C with an intensive therapy of 7 versus about 8 and people with conventional therapy. So not quite the same delta that we had in type 2 but with very similar results which showed a relationship between intensive blood glucose control and prevention against microvascular complications in type 2 diabetes. No clear prevention of macrovascular, although that's a very, very complicated subject. Uh, one group took metformin and maybe metformin showed some cardiovascular protection. That's open to a bit of debate. Uh, and there was a reduction in myocardial infarction in this trial in absolute terms, but not statistical terms. And so, again, we were sort of left with, well, intensive blood glucose control seems to be good also in type 2 um, for microvascular. And then the UKPDS did exactly what the DCCT did, which is to basically wait about another 8 to 9 years. Again, the trial was finished. People were you know, let out of it. Their A1Cs normalized in the intensive group versus the control groups. Uh, everything else normalized, including blood pressure. And then they were actually studied uh, eight or nine years later with the same finding, which was continued now proven protection against cardiovascular disease in the people who had had the A1Cs that were intensively controlled versus those who hadn't. Um, same molecular mimicry. And actually, one of the things that gets lost in this conversation is if you read the original UKPDS, what you took away from that is that blood pressure was a better control target than A1C because blood pressure at the during the trial did actually seem to confer some cardiovascular benefits while um, blood glucose control didn't really. But at the end of the of the continuation phase, that eight years later, when A1C had normalized and blood pressure had normalized, the cardiovascular protection lingered despite A1Cs coming together, but, but the blood pressure-related ones didn't. 
So if there is if there is a benefit of intensive blood pressure control in diabetes, you need to keep it controlled. There isn't this sort of long-term memory. And then as a final closing of the loop, there's actually another trial we talk a lot about, something called the Steno2 trial, which is a, a small trial of taking people in Scandinavia and trying to intensively control not just their blood glucose, but blood pressure and lipids. And at the end of that trial, there was pretty good cardiovascular protection, but then everything was stopped, and they were studied an average of seven or eight years later, and they still had this lingering cardiovascular benefit. So this whole idea of mimicry, or at least this uh, sort of molecular protection, is, has been shown not just in type 1 diabetes, but type 2 diabetes. It seemed to be a biological fact. Well, Jack, I really want to thank you uh, for uh, reviewing the DCCT trials, its primary endpoints, its uh, secondary endpoints, uh, the EDIC study, uh, and really giving us the context uh, of those uh, studies as it relates to the type 2 diabetic patient in that review. Uh, and these are landmark trials that have absolutely set the standard of care as it relates to the goals of treatment, as it relates to how we monitor patients over time, and to help us all be grounded in fact uh, and not fiction, but fact as to what expectations we can get from uh, that uh, type of control. Uh, these trials, uh, th- this trial, the DCCT, uh, and the observation period set the standard uh, that has been, as you just articulated, uh, uh, emulated by other trials, uh, and clearly uh, in its 30th anniversary is still holding the test for time. Uh, what I'd like to do is wrap it up right now uh, and refer uh, our listeners to betacellsindiabetes.org uh, for additional information. Uh, and uh, at this point, again, one final thank you for uh, Dr. Leahy and an eloquent review of the trial. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Dr. Leahy. Thank you very much.